Romans chapter 5, I'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word to us tonight. Uh, There's a girl I know, we'll call her Charlotte, it's not her real name, uh, who was dating her now husband, uh, John, also not his real name, And they were in the midst of one of those very difficult, what we call long-distance relationships. You know, there's a lot of challenges that come uh, with long-distance relationships. I don't think it's a totally unworkable situation, but there's a whole lot of different things that people go through when you're trying to date someone uh, when they go to another school, oftentimes hours away. And that was the case with uh, Charlotte and John. But I got a call from John one afternoon in a fit of panic. Uh, because of a fight that he and Charlotte had gotten into the night before on the telephone. Uh, It seems that John had been sort of out the night before with some friends, uh, some of which happened to be girls, and Charlotte had gotten a message from one of her other friends that went to school where John went that John uh, was out with someone else the night before. Hmm. Therein lie the panic, right? And, you know, the classic fight sort of ensued after this experience. You know, Charlotte, you know, called, demanding to know what was up. You know, John told her the truth, of course, that nothing had happened. Uh, But then he got super defensive about why it was that Charlotte didn't trust him. Uh, Charlotte, of course, burst into tears because she was so tired of the distance. And John, of course, hung up the phone mad that they had just ruined each other's night uh, by getting into a fight. (laughs) It's like a script that you read, that every relationship almost has to go through those kinds of things. Okay, so John is sitting in my office, right? Uh, And he's very upset. Honestly, he's frustrated. And my impression was that he really just kind of, he needed to sort of talk it out. (laughs) But as he's sitting there in my office, he, he finally at one point during the conversation announces, he says, that's it. I'm going. I'm going to go see her right this minute. Uh, And of course, I stopped him and I said, John, it's nine hours away. And to me, he said, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I've got to go. He picked up, he got in his car and drove to go see Charlotte. The things we do for love. Hmm? 
Um, is there any more universal experience that people have when they uh, start to think about relationships? And this is true for any relationship, not just people that are dating. But is there any more fundamental struggle that we have in any human relationship than to know if we are secure in that relationship? Uh, in other words, to know that um, things between us are okay, uh, that, that, that we're on the same page, uh, that we're not living under a cloud uh, uh, of threat that somehow it might end at any minute. Everybody wants to know that the relationship that I'm enjoying it comes with some security to it, some assurance that it's going to be there for the long haul, right? Now, we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, I'm suggesting, that Paul, having introduced his people to the way in which his people will have a relationship with Jesus, right? This radical new way called justification by grace through faith, like we talked about before spring break, that he looks and now turns in chapter 5 to that very question. Having sort of started a new relationship with us, how do I know that it's going to be okay? <laughs> how do I know that he's going to stick with me? And I'll be honest with you, I feel like I catch a lot of religious people on this campus at, a, at, a, at an existential moment. Uh, in the last 16 years of ordained ministry that I've had a chance to do uh, campus ministry, in. I don't think I've had a more constant, consistent conversation than that one. The struggle to know whether or not these things that we talk about that seem so wonderful and so true about the gospel, whether or not they're actually true of me. How can I, if I can be at all, be assured of my salvation? How do I know if God hasn't given up on me? Right? How do I know if I've not given up on God? Is there a real sense of hope to my outlook and to my future? Look, we are looking this semester at the question of how to combat commonplace Christianity. Christianity that's become mundane, that we're simply bored with. And I want to simply submit to you that one of the reasons why we get bored with Christianity is because we haven't yet gotten a picture of our future. Namely, the security of our future. And so tonight we turn to the question of hope and of assurance and of peace. And I want to try to unpack it by looking at three things that Paul gives us in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. First of all, he mentions to us the reality of the situation. He walks us through then the logic of the situation. And thirdly and finally, he starts to hint at the tests that we can apply to our own heart to find out if we have that right assurance. So we need to look at the reality the logic and the test of this whole issue of assurance. First of all, the reality. Look, y'all, in verses 1 and 2, Paul is basically saying that if you have been justified, if this thing that he described in chapter 3 has happened to you, you'll know it because you've been changed past, present, and future. There is no aspect of your personal existence that's not been transformed. And he lists all three of them there in verses 1 and 2. The first thing he says is he says that your past has been resolved. In other words, he says that since justification is true, you now have peace with God. 
Now, we got to be very careful to unpack that properly. Most of the time, when people read that verse for the first time, they think, oh, yes, the peace of God. Mm -hmm. That peaceful, easy feeling of (laughs) Eagles, 70s, you know, uh, classic rock fame. Uh, That's what I'm looking for, you know, in life. (laughs) Does anyone know who the Eagles are anymore? Thank you. A familiar nod helps keep the sermon going. Um, We think that when we read peace of God, we think of the peacefulness that God gives us. Does that make sense? That inner sense of like, ha, and calm. That's not what's being talked about in this verse. Um, What it's referring to is an end to the hostilities between you and God. (laughs) In other words, Paul opens up and says, you may not realize this, and for most Southern Christianity, we don't realize this, But the the way in which God looks at your past from the inside of Christianity is that there was a war going on. And that now, justification having become true, the war is over. There's been a ceasefire. The war between you and God is over. And that's the first piece of good news. Our past is reconciled in that way. Now look, That ought to be immediately good news to to people when they hear it. But what I find your generation wrestling with is this whole idea, and in many ways it's probably a sort of um, a typical southern listener, if you will, who look at that and say to themselves, oh, come on. Are we still doing this less? (laughs) Are we still looking at life as human beings as being at war with God? Really? Are we going to use those rather over-the-top terms to describe a relationship with God? War? Hostility? That really is what, it does, what you're describing it as? In other words, for most people, it's a bit of a surprise that they suddenly find out that they were at war with God at all. <laughs> they might look and say, well, you know, I've got my problems, um, and I struggle here and there. I'm certainly not as bad as those people, but the truth of the matter is I'm not at war with God. I mean, what are you talking about? And for most people, they look and say, you know, do we really need this kind of God, this war-torn God, this God who's sort of inflicting these things on his people? Do we really need that less? Which I'm always curious about because people get, there's a sense in which when people try to swallow that, they kind of choke on it and think to themselves, oh, here we go, it's that wrathful, angry God again. We're trying to get rid of that God less. We're trying to purge that from our understanding. And for reasons that I'm going to try to unpack in the rest of the time tonight, you've lopped off the most important piece of the puzzle if you do that. Because I simply want to submit to you that why is it offensive for us to hear that a war has ended when Christianity is trying to talk about how to end the war? (laughs) I mean, imagine that you're getting ready to graduate. Follow with the illustration here for a second. And on the basis of your diploma, you just found out that you landed this sweet job. As long as you produce this diploma and prove that you've graduated from this institution, you've got this wonderful, like, dream job that you always wanted to have, okay? But when you go to the bursar, right, uh, to sort of get your final papers together, you find that through your own silly, uh, forgetful mismanagement and irresponsibility, you owe the university like $10,000 in (laughs) parking tickets, you know, uh, fees, loan fees parking tickets, $10,000 of the parking tickets. Go with me. It's an illustration. Um, and you're stuck. You feel horrible. They look at you and they say, you can't graduate until you pay all these things off. You spend a week in abject depression, right? 
But then all of a sudden, later on that week, when you have nowhere else to turn, somebody comes up to you and says, look, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And they sit down and they write you a check for the money to cover that debt so that you can graduate and take your sweet job. Now, how silly would you sound if you suddenly looked at that person and was like, ah, get out of here. Stop talking about this whole check. I I, I don't want to hear about that check. It only makes me feel more guilty for how stupid I was. You'd look at that person and say, yeah, but it's a check. (laughs) This is good news for you. This is something that ought to be giving you, that ought to be a score. It solves the problem. And yet we often get choked at this idea that there was a war between us and God. Hold that thought. Paul says, though, our past has been settled because the war is ended. Okay? Look, for us, I think that it means for us that our past doesn't mean what it used to mean. I'm going to return to this in just a second. You do realize that everyone has this tendency to look back at their personal history and interpret where you've been in life with a certain, you you attach a significance to it, a meaning to it, that it says something. Justification comes along and rewrites that script and says it didn't mean what you thought it meant. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Secondly, though, Paul looks and says, though, that justification has not only resolved your past, but it's resolved your present. Why? By giving you access to be what you were created to be. The way he puts it is this, you have access into this grace in which we now, present tense, stand. In other words, a Christian, I think this is what he's saying, a Christian looks at his life in grace in the same way that a fish looks at his life when he finally makes it back in the water out of the boat. In other words, a Christian looks and says that now I have a place that I sense is what I was supposed to be. I found a sense of understanding what I was created for. When justification comes into our life, the feeling of being out of place in the world is resolved. So that now I can look and say that all of the time of feeling out of place was simply a memory trace. Leftover aspects of my being created in the image of a God who made the world to work with me in it in that way coming to bear on my life. But now in justification, I can look and say, now I have a place to stand. I've got access. I can be in relationship with the person I was created to know. And so in some senses, it resolves my here and now. So it resolves my past. It resolves my present. But thirdly, Paul says that even your future is now resolved by this whole uh, uh, work in justification. Because what we do is, he says, is that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, that word hope is one that oftentimes gets misused as well. For most of us, we think the word hope is, you know, hope. Cross your fingers, you know, know, uh, I'm hoping that maybe God will love me. I'm hoping that my future turns out okay. And we flinch at the idea. But that's not what the Greek word hope means. The word hope in Greek is much more of a, it's a much stronger word. It talks about a conviction. Uh, It's about a certainty. In other words, Paul says... That justification is the only way to finally get confident about your life. It's the only way to finally be able to look at your life that basically carries you beyond your circumstances. This is a a, a big issue, so we could spend the whole night on it. But there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, where uh, where the writer of Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast, here's the phrase, anchor of the soul. 
You ever read that? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says that our hope is an anchor. Think about what an anchor does. An anchor is pretty interesting. Um, You know, the anchor uh, is not the thing that makes your boat safe necessarily. You know, the, the boat is on the top of the water. And on top of the water, there's all kinds of undulating circumstances. Life goes up and down. It's tossed back and forth. But what happens is, is there's security down below in the depths, in the places where we formerly couldn't see. But if you have an anchor, there's something that connects your life, the boat of your life, to the security that's below the surface. And having connected those two things, that certainty is transferred through the chain and to you so that we don't have to worry about the circumstances. But see, this is not the way we think. For most of us, what we do when we start to pray about our lives and we get nervous about our futures and graduation is sort of looking, you know, staring us down the, uh, down the barrel, we start to look and we begin to pray to God to change our circumstances. You know what I mean by that? We start to look and say, oh, if only God you know, would give me a good grade. If only God would snap his fingers and make me do the right things. If God would only take this feeling away from me. Hmm? In other words, all we do is pray to God to change our circumstances. And yet Paul's saying that's not how he wants you to live. He wants you to live with hope in something that doesn't have anything to do with your circumstances. Stop praying for God to fix your life and actually find him in the midst of it. That will resolve your future. So look, the reality that Paul is describing, that's point one, is that my past, my present, and my future because of justification, have been made completely secure. We're settled. The issue is settled. We know who we are at last in him. That's the reality, first of all. Okay. Second point, and it's much quicker. That was a long one. Bear with me. The logic that he uses. Look, verses 6 through 10 are actually worth taking a second look at because they get so familiar that you can, it's hard to figure out exactly what Paul is saying. But in many ways, it's a very simple, easy to state, but incredibly profound point. Because Paul is saying, look, I want you to know why you can be secure. All right? He's trying to get you in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your doubting, in the midst of your fear and your struggle, to stop and say, wait, 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 wait. What am I doing? What am I thinking of? And he says, what I want you to do is I want to watch you, walk you through the logic of the good news. And here's the logic. It's pretty easy. He says, when we come and say, look, if God has already done the difficult thing in us, in dealing with the problem between us, can we not then trust him to do the comparatively simple thing of actually going about completing the task? Did you catch that? In other words, if God reconciled us while we were his enemies, while we were at war, While we were, by our behavior and by our rebellion, shaking our fist at him, if he bound himself to us in that circumstance, then how much more can we trust him to finish our salvation now that we're friends because of justification? Did you catch that? That was the big point. (laughs) We'll say it again. Look, if before salvation we were enemies of God, How much more can we trust him to hold on to us if now we've been made friends by what Jesus did on the cross? 
Now, I hope that you're recognizing something right now because you're looking going, okay, Les is getting all worked up about that. He just told me it was important, but I'm not really sure that I get it. And you want to know why? It's because the first part of that equation is so hard to swallow. We get this a lot. I get this a lot. There is a sense in which I realize (coughs) that there's a reputation that certain uh, ministries struggle with. And I realize that for some people that have limited or, uh, or just Wednesday night exposure to RUF, uh, they've come back and give me feedback to be like, to be quite frank with you, Les, I don't like RUF because you tend to talk about sin all the time. Quite frankly, you, it, it's just kind of a downer sometimes. And to be honest with you, I, I, I might tend to agree with you under certain circumstances. Now, never mind whether or not the Bible talks about sin that much, but why would it be so focused on sin can you hold off on just a minute on that instinct to be like, ugh, Bible sin, yeah. That's why I'm running away from Christianity right now, Les. That's why I don't have anything to do with it anymore. Can you hold off on that just for a moment to consider this one thought? Is it not possible that one of the reasons why we have so little security is because we've not understood our circumstance in the first place? Look, we have to be convinced of the logic of two things. Number one, the treacherousness of your condition prior to knowing Christ, but then secondly, the certainty of your future. In other words, you lose assurance, follow me, follow me, you lose assurance of the second if you deaden the first. And we simply want to escape that. "Ah, I don't want to talk about the sin thing. And so God goes in his word and he's like, I've got to tell you more about my holiness. I've got to bring more information about judgment. I've got to let you know that the universe really does operate on the basis of my judgment. Then if you're going against the grain, that's going to destroy you. And we're like, oh, that makes me feel bad. I feel guilty. And God is saying, but look, but until you understand that, the fact that we've made a friendship is not going to mean anything to you. Look, the most disconcerting problem that Christians struggle with is the incessant feeling that we have somehow sinned our way outside of God's favor. And that is such a curious thing. (laughs) Because follow the logic of that. When someone gets to a point where they're doubting their salvation and they think to themselves, you know, this is it. I've done it. There is no way with the places that I've been that God's going to be able to forgive me. What a great post-spring break topic. There's no way. Does it not suggest, if you think that, that if God is going to cast you out of favor on the basis of some demerit in your life, Does that not suggest that you think you had it because of some merit in your life? Look, y'all, the reason why, the reason why justification lays so lightly on us is because we honestly think that it wasn't that hard for him to save us. And so he's got to say a lot of things that bring us to some dark places personally before he looks and goes, okay, yes, but guess what? I paid the debt. He wants to give us a salvation that even we can't mess up. But if we don't think that we're messed up, he can't give it to us. Is that not what Jesus means when he comes and says, I didn't come for healthy people. Uh, Healthy people don't need a doctor. I came for sick people. And by the way, everybody's sick. There's only two kinds of people. Everybody's sick. There's just some people that don't think they're sick, and there's some people that know they're sick. I came for the second crowd. The first crowd doesn't want anything to do with me. That's the essence, the logic that Paul employs. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the test. So how do I know? All right? I hear that less. I hear that, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know whether to, how to really evaluate what's going on on the inside. 
I'm simply pitching to you to say this, that the person who has been justified by this grace cannot lose that salvation. If it is is a salvation without merit, there is no demerit that can take you out of that state of grace. Jesus says it in John chapter 10, that there is no one who can snatch my sheep out of my hand. It is secure. But look, we would be foolish not to entertain the possibility that I am fooling myself about my own justification. Now, by the way, stay tuned next week. We're going to talk about that very topic next week. Okay, so come back. In verse 5 and in verse 11, it's worth circling, what I think we get is we get the subjective and the objective tests that Paul gives us to know whether or not we really can have this real assurance. The first one is subjective. It's subjective because it it says there in verse 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. First time the Holy Spirit gets brought up in the the, uh, book of Romans, by the way. But it's a subjective thing. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and begins to do something there. And there's a subjective sense of knowing that something's happened. In other words, it begins to affect my mind. That is, my heart begins to inform my mind that I can be satisfied by the gospel. I look at it and intellectually uh, uh, it makes sense to me. It it fits with my life. There's a sense of, of connection that I make with it. Secondly, it works on my emotions. Lo and behold, there might be a moment where I get excited about it. Have you ever had a moment where you thought to yourself, whew, you know, if that was really true, that's, that's good news. Like, somebody should have told me about this before. And I feel like I should tell somebody else. Has that ever occurred to you? That's the spirit being shed abroad. Thirdly and finally, it starts to work on our actions. We actually look and say, look, if all this is true, I, I've got to make some changes in my life. There's got to be some things change. My friends, that's the subject of Holy Spirit coming into your heart and dealing with your mind, your emotions, and your actions. That's evidence number one, test number one. Has that happened to you? Look, y'all, but secondly, there's something more than that. Because the subjective assurance is just that. It's subjective. You know what that means? It means it's open to interpretation. Look, there's a whole lot of people that I know who are trying to live their Christian lives on the basis of that first thing. And you know what? It is a fast way to burn out. There's a whole lot of post-Christians on this campus who tried to live their life on the basis of that subjective experience, and it doesn't work. But there's an objective sense, though. And that's what verse 11 is about. And that's why it's so beautiful. More than that, Paul says... We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying regardless of all of the subjective things that happen in your heart, the only way for you to have assurance is by looking to Jesus. (laughs) Is if he's the one who gave me something that we have received. You see, that makes you a, it makes you passive in that exchange. You are a recipient of something that he's giving to you. It cannot be engineered inside your own heart. That's the objective assurance. And it brings me to my great moment, freshman year, first year of seminary. College was not a happy time for me. And I wandered down to seminary in a, in a, in a, in a bad way, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, everything. And I remember the healing that washed over me, and I don't know if it had the same effect over you, when my history professor, my church history professor, 
was uh, standing up and lecturing, and somebody asked a question about the doctrine of assurance as it related to some obscure church historical issue. And I remember Dr. Freund, God rest his soul, he's passed away now. Um, I remember Dr. Freund standing up and saying, well, you know, most of the conversations that I have with people who struggle with assurance happen because most people are looking inside themselves to get assurance. It was really funny how it just kind of went, oh, yeah. Look, y'all, assurance has got to be outside of you. And if you're simply trying to dig through the issues of what's inside of you, you're going to struggle. It's not, in many ways, it's a subjective sense. The question that we need to be asking, though, is if I'm looking at Christ, will there be signs? Yes, but there's signs. They're the result, not the cause of your salvation. That's the issue. What are those signs? We'll take a look at it. Paul mentions suffering. You know that this thing has gripped you, that you're leaning upon the outward sense because you change the way you look at suffering. You know, before justification, suffering used to be punishment. You ever felt that? You know, when you go through hard times, it's just like, I don't know why God is so mad at me. Now, because of justification, it's not punishment. It's, it's surgery. God's working on me. Secondly, your past gets healed. That's what I was saying. I was having a conversation a while back, many years ago, with someone who had a horrific past. Um, I may have talked about this before. She had had an experience as a child of sexual abuse that was horrific and honestly gut-wrenching to even hear her talk about. And she said, you know what, what, what I realize, what I think God is doing in me, is she said, I think that He's trying to tell me that what that event has always meant to me, which basically means that you're dirty, you're a slut, you're, you're soiled. He's now telling me that that's not what that means. God comes in justification and reinterprets my past and says, that's not what that means. You know what it means? It means that you live in a fallen world that I'm trying to redeem. And you know what it was? It began to be healing for her. So what happens when you start to look at something objective instead of something subjective? Third, when you begin to discover character flaws, when all of a sudden with each passing age you look and go, wow, I didn't know I was capable of that. The discovery of that thing doesn't make you doubt God's love, but it actually makes you feel all that much closer to him. You want to know why? Because you realize how much more you need him. <laughs> you see, when you get justification looking and saying, ooh, I didn't know that was inside me doesn't make you feel distant from God. You actually realize, boy, I didn't realize I was so dependent upon him. He becomes bigger in your life, not smaller. Fourth, when you blow it big time, and I mean you blow it big time, you find yourself doing things where you're like, ooh, that was not good. Your conscience looks at him and says, how in the world could God love you? You do not answer the question of your conscience with your performance. You're not looking and saying, well, you know, I had a bad day. I was under a lot of pressure. You don't make excuses. You look and say, it's because of the old man still attached inside of me. That's what's working. Fifthly, you learn how to deal with criticism. Do you get defensive when people criticize you? What does defensiveness say? You know what? There's this thing in your life that I really think you ought to look at. Oh, who, are, who are you to tell me? Doesn't defensiveness basically an argument to say, I'm not as bad as that? Hmm. the gospel looks and says, oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> but that's okay because Jesus loves screw-ups like that. Finally, there's something about facing death in a different way. I always hesitate to talk about this because I know that death for many of us is such a remote thing, not for all of us. 
Although it's been a tough semester. We've had a lot of struggles this semester. But you know, one of the things that justification does is make me look at death in a totally different way. The fear, the welling up of anxiety that comes when we go to a funeral suddenly gets changed in justification because we look and say, now I'm going to a friend, not into the unknown, not into the deep void, but into a friend to joy. Look, y'all, let me ask you a question in, in closing, and I'll finish with this. Is the relationship between you and God a very fragile truce? Are you under the assumption that basically you're walking on very thin ice and at any given moment, a lack or a failing in your performance will cause you to crash right through to a certain spiritual misery? Is it not possible that one of the reasons why you've entertained that is because the truth is you've taken very lightly your sin, ironically, (laughs) that it's the lightness of your sin that's making you doubt his salvation? Or is it equally possible that you've talked yourself into thinking that the king is really not all that willing to forgive? That basically his connection that he's made with me is all that fragile? Hey, Paul has really good news for you here. In Romans 5, as he shows you the reality and walks you through the logic and gives you simple tests to take to say, what am I building my life on? Is it upon his objective work? Because if it is, there's peace and assurance. Consider it an invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you do that in us? We realize that in some degrees we're asking for a subjective assurance for you to grant to us. But that doesn't mean that we want it any less. You said that your spirit would come and work in us and change us, convict us where we need to be convicted, but build us up where we need so desperately to be built up. Would you maybe do that in the hearts of all of my friends here tonight? To the person who's not even sure whether they know you at all, would you draw close to them through that realization? If nothing else, for for a, a desire to have joy again. And for the person who who knows that they're a Christian, would you give them greater assurance? Would you set them ready for whatever else is inside their hearts that even they don't know is there? So, Lord Jesus, work in us. We we pray so that we might be the kind of people that walk with confidence in the way you want us to and not in fear. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.